Thanks everyone for coming tonight to our April 7th uh, Alameda Health System Board of Trustees Finance Committee. We will open with a roll call. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Estate. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Splendorio. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, and just to confirm, we don't have anyone online for public comment. Is that correct? Correct. All right. If anyone wants to give public comment, please send a message in the chat to Ahmad Azizi. He is our meeting host tonight and will make sure to alert me uh, if there is a need for speaking. Um, our next Agenda item is agenda item A. Our first agenda item is to approve the minutes from our March meeting. Do we have any comments or a motion to approve? I'll move to approve. Second. May we get a vote? SD Blue. I have one comment. Could I? Uh, I was on mute. Sorry about that. And, in reference to accounts receivable in the fourth paragraph, I think it is, there was a um, comment that says uh, every 90 days uh, we turn over our net revenue in AR. And I wonder, since our AR is now around 65 days, is, is that really an accurate comment in the minutes? And it was about 70 days, I think, at the time of our last meeting. Yeah, that's that's a fair comment. Um, we, in the math and the calculation, use 90 days when we figure our, out our days in AR. But you are correct. Our actual days in AR are now about um, 61.8 that we'll report tonight. So we are doing much better than that 90 days. But that is the, the math and the calculation. So would it be appropriate to, to ask that the minutes be revised to say we every 65 days we turn our AR? Um, that's what we that's what is happening when our when that is the days in AR. But uh, it just the context of that. I think the comment related to the calculation of the days in AR that we that we okay. use. You know? Okay, got it. Okay, that's fine. Am I hearing that the, even though the numbers are different today because of improvements, the minutes reflect the discussion accurately, so do not need to be adjusted? It's, it's how it's, it's in the minutes. It's not clear whether we were referring to the calculation or the actual turnaround. So if it's, we, uh, Trustee Fox is absolutely correct. You know, if our days in AR are 61, then we should be turning around our a, our cash in 61 point days. He's absolutely right. When we do our math calculation, we look at a 90-day net revenue number to calculate our days mm -hmm. in AR. So depending upon, and I can't remember now exactly what, the, what we were discussing at that point in time. And I don't remember either, so... Uh... I just want to raise the question and uh, we can make the change or not make the change. Would you like to make a motion, 
to make the adjustment, Alan, or do well, you want I don't, to just... I don't recall the discussion. So, um, you know, I think as written, it might be out of context, but it says every 90 days we turn over our net revenue in AR. I would say that that, to make that comment accurate, we should say every 65 to 70 days. I'd make that motion. All right, it's fair. So we'll make an amendment to the motion on the floor. Uh, that motion was made by you, Splint. So are you okay with that amendment? I'll accept that amendment. Great. Will I get another second? Second. Thank you, Trustee Blue. All right. Uh, pending no other comments, we can move to the roll call vote. Okay, so to approve the minutes with that adjustment, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Item B of our agenda is B1 is to hear our CFO report from our CFO, Kim Miranda. Um, the host has disabled participant screen sharing. Are you going to um, provide that, Ahmad? Or yeah, do that now. You're sorry. Do you want to? Do you want to do it, or I can I can uh, do it on my end too, if you'd prefer me to. Yeah, go ahead and do it, Kim, if you can, please. Okay, there we go. All right, can everybody see it? Okay. All right. So this is the February finance presentation. Um, and now it's not going to let me advance. Oh, there we go. Okay. So I'm starting with the volume highlights slide. Uh, just I'll just make a couple comments here. Um, just as a reminder, the budget for FY21 did not include any COVID impact. You know, we at the time had no idea what to expect, and we opted just to go with what our budget would have been had there not been COVID. So what that does allow us to do now is see what the variance, is, the variance COVID is actually having on our volumes. So that's the, the good side of doing it this way. So year to date, we're about 12% um, under budget. And for the current month, we're slightly better than that at about 10%, although we do have fewer discharges and a slightly higher length of stay. Our other stats are all running pretty significantly behind target in that you know, 22 to uh, up to a 56% variance for uh, PES. So pretty negative and pretty consistent with where we've been year to date. There is one uh, shiny spot, uh, and that's in the inpatient surgeries. We're down 8.4% year to date. It's 14.9, uh, and that is driven by higher uh, inpatient census, and we will see the impact on revenue. Um, down in the skilled nursing area there, our uh, daily census is down this month. Uh, that was driven by a COVID uh, outbreak. Uh, however, 
our discharges look really good and the uh, COVID unit really did help us improve throughput, not only at Alameda Health System, but also for other hospitals in the community. In regard to clinic visits, uh, we're actually running ahead of budget and that's driven by telehealth. It has really improved access and has really held our volumes up in that area. Any questions? Okay, so our financial statements are, are not looking uh, good. Our net income is a loss of 4.6 in the month of February, and we are at a loss of 26.6 year to date. Um, on a year to date basis, that means our net income is short, almost 30 million to plan. And when we look at EBITDA, which is earnings before interest depreciation and amortization, that's basically um, what we consider our free cash flow. Um, we are at a loss of 3.2 million in February and 15.7 million year to date. And that is nearly 50 million off from where we had expected to be. So the revenue highlights on uh, this page are, I'm gonna focus on the net patient revenue line. So that consists of gross patient revenue and that directly correlates to the volumes that we were just talking about. So our gross patient, patient charges are 4.6% and 12.8 million off target. Year to date, we're at 236.8 million and nearly 10% off. So we are doing better than we have been year to date most of it being driven by the inpatient. And that's where that inpatient surgical volume is as well. The net patient service revenue, we're sitting at 16.4%. That's consistent with budget, consistent with our run rate, but below our year-to-date budget. Uh, and the year-to-date budget included improvements on net revenue from behavioral health for John George from the county, as well as all of our commercial contracts. And most of those have not been realized yet. So we still got more months in the year. Um, our budget system was not able to put it in uh, on a month to month kind of basis. And we are delayed in, in regard to the negotiations with the county. Um, however, we will be um, uh, completing those here in the next month, just uh, since all of all of you may not be familiar with the the way that uh, these rates get set with the county is uh, there'll be a max contract amount that's done in the beginning of the fiscal year uh, that allows them to pay us and then when we actually get our cost information in and the short drill report done in the december time frame then we share information with the county and then we start talking usually in the january time frame um, this year we're a little bit delayed with COVID, um, but meetings are scheduled on the uh, in the calendar now. So hopefully we'll be able to get that updated uh, maybe by our next uh, finance committee meeting. If there are updates, Kim, will they be retroactive to the beginning of the year? Yes, they will. All right. So the next slide focuses on the government programs and other. Uh, so couple things I want to point out here. Uh, in the current month, we are seeing another hit on the rate range, 1.6 million. We are going back and looking at that. 
Um, we had planned to bring in some reserves. And so um, I'm looking at that now. We may end up with an adjustment next month. I'll need to let you know there. Um, this month, we also accrued revenue for the, um, the COVID quarantine unit. Uh, the county gave us startup costs to do that unit, uh, which was a big help to us. And um, we've actually accrued the re revenue and invoiced them for payment. On a year-to-date basis, there's a big variance here in supplemental funds. Just want to remind everybody that there's a $15.6 million uh, variance in here. Um, the funds that we received from the county, uh, $12.9 million got moved back to the last fiscal year. So we have a permanent timing difference here. We do think that this uh, entire, the entire 15.6 will be collected but 12.9 of it got moved to last year. And the other item I want to bring up is the COVID-19. So far this year, 29.5 million of funding, you know, which obviously has had been a big help to us. On the expense side, uh, a couple things I'll point out. There's really uh, uh, two items. I'll, I'll talk about labor in the next slide. And that's the physician contract services. The reason why I'm bringing it up here is we have a negative variance of 11.9%, 1.8 year to date. So everything's being driven off the current month. So I wanted to address that. And that is the result of um, some AIM hospitalist coverage that's running a little higher, maybe as our inpatient census has gone up. And then there's locum fees that uh, uh, AHS is paying for neurology and anesthesia. And we didn't know that at the time of, of budget. So uh, that's dri driving these costs up here. So just for clarification, AIM hospitalist coverage means uh, another contractor that's not UC. Right, it, the AIM is one of the hospitalist groups that um, covers for us and they're, they're uh, we needed to increase their coverage. I can't explain exactly why the increase in the coverage, but we needed to do it. They provided the service for us. And so there's a, a negative variance and it looks like Dr. Gimaldi might want to say something there. Yeah, I, I can explain. We had to use their services in the post-acute uh, at Park Bridge during the outbreak. Uh, and we needed their services also to uh, when we opened uh, the COVID unit uh, to round on that COVID unit. So that was the increase in service uh, that, uh, that happened during the surge. Thank you. Uh, and then a locum's fees is uh, because we've got some physicians that are, that are temporarily out. So um, we have to, we need to pay those from another bucket of funds. Um, any other questions on this slide? All right, so the next slide is the labor cost. And uh, just a couple things I wanna point out here. I usually combine salary and registry together. So for the current month, we're very close to budget and we have not seen that for a very long time. Um, if you look year to date, we actually have a negative variance of 13.1 million. And I've kind of laid out what those things are. 
We've got the, um, the, the leaves of absence for COVID. That was an additional 8.7 million we paid. We had the strike coverage at 10.4 million. And then we've had to pay a lot higher for our registry staff. However, overall, our FTE variance is slightly positive year to date. And then now in the current month, we are picking up to that to a much higher um, positive variance in FTEs, and that is consistent with how we ran pre-COVID. I'll show you a slide in just a minute on the run rate of FTEs. And I think uh, we've talked about the retirement quite a few times. It looks strange here, but I think we've covered that uh, quite a bit. Uh, any questions on this? Okay. So here's the FTE graph. So we've got a uh, red line here that is the budget, right? And it's, uh, it's, it's relatively flat and it builds up here and it builds up in the winter months because we usually have a higher census and we need to bring on more staff. The um, blue line is our actual FTE and right, right after April, when we announced that we would give staff 12 months leave of absence, the many staff took advantage of that. And we see it building up, 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 up. And then it ended in December and dropping back down. So in February here, we have a total of 35.1 FTEs on leave still, meaning they still had time left of their 12 weeks to take. Um, we had a high in December of 192.8 FTE on COVID leave. So this uh, situation obviously has a huge impact on our financials and caused that um, uh, most the biggest item uh, towards the overall labor variance. So Kim, uh, it's Janet, if I could just add it, the people that took the COVID leaves, um, they actually had to come back January 1st. So the additional leaves that you're seeing might be maternity leaves or people that are out on uh, leave of absence for medical. So I just no, didn't want anyone to, to yeah, think. They're that. actually interim inter, uh, interim leaves and we can actually see the pay code as being COVID in the payroll system. Janet. So we still got some folks that were eligible to use up their leave, no new ones, but they still, some people still had some available time available. It might and be, so FMLA, see but, oh, okay. It might be FMLA, but nobody was to be on a leave after January 1st. Uh, okay, maybe we can go talk offline because I can sure. see them in the in payroll reg in the payroll system, the COVID code. Okay, we'll follow up on that. All right, so this next uh, item is the balance sheet. And uh, there's just three items I'll hit on here. There's the days in AR. We saw a decrease of 5.8. And I know uh, many of you will remember from last month, we actually had had an increase. And we talked about the fact that we were holding fee-for-service Medi-Cal claims. Um, those are still on hold. So they're not the reason for the drop this month. We actually got those out between March 9th and March 12th. Um, so the good news is we have um, we, we've built Epic in a way now that we can uh, actually attach the true acquisition price for, for fee-for-service uh, 340B drugs. And while when we fixed that, we were also able to fix the modifier issue, um, which uh, our compliance committee will follow up on. 
So I'll show you a graph here in a minute on the days in AR, but before I do that, I want to touch on these other two things. The net position fund balance, this has deteriorated. We were at a new negative 277,787 at the beginning of the fiscal year. We're now at 304,102. Negative is bad. Um, and it's being driven by this year-to-date loss up here of 26.6 million. Um, good news is on the net negative balance, that's our line of credit with the county, we are at a good place. We're actually lower than we were at the end of the fiscal year. So cash flow is good, but our actual um, uh, accrual-based uh, financial statements are dri driving a big loss here. And I'll talk about more why our cash is better in a minute. So this is the AR days graph over here. Um, you can see in uh, um, the last, my January report, we had kind of come up. And now since then we have just dropped down. Oops. We've dropped down substantially and continued all the way through March. So our lowest now 61.3. Uh, it's a great spot to be, uh, especially when you consider before um, we implemented EPIC, we were up in over 80 days, and that was a good, that was actually doing well to us at that time. So big improvement here. So um, I also want to point out that on candidate stability, so this is a component of AR. This is the, this uh, candidate for billing represents claims that are in-house that we haven't been able to drop to a payer yet. Um, and this is a good indicator on how we've been cleaning up um, the EPIC build and getting stuff out sooner. And we're on the lowest, at our lowest point ever at 4.0. And this is even um, better than in uh, the safety net top performer. So this is outstanding work by the revenue cycle, Terry Manifesto and her team. I want to just take a moment to say well done better than the than epic's top performer bravo thank you <laughs> all right and then this next graph just uh just it's it's another way to look at kind of what we've been talking about you know the if you look at these graphs here the green is cash so you can see our cash jumping all over the place right um, and then you can see our net revenue, which is, uh, is, doesn't jump around as much, but it's still jumping around. And the net revenue, again, is an estimate we make, right? We have to guess what our net revenue is going to be because we, it takes us a while to collect. And there's a, you know, a lot of different services we provide. Uh, there's different payer mix, different mix of services. So we make our estimate every month, which is the blue line. But what we want to make sure of is that the two meet, um, and they are. Um, in January, I talked about this, that we did have that uh, adjustment for non-patient cash that was sitting in the suspense account that we had to clear out. But once we made that fix, we are in line. And this is something I watch very carefully. And this is something the old finance committee used to like to see. Um, but it's, uh, you can really see, and I could probably talk about why all these peaks in cash were so Terry, you know, it's, it's been a journey, you know, uh, you know, uh, stabilizing our build in Epic. Any questions there? All right, so the next uh, slide is our line of credit forecast. 
So just as a reminder for everybody, this black line here, this is the limit on our line of credit with the county. So we are responsible to make sure that we don't draw down any more funds than this line. And at the end of each fiscal year, it drops down and it drops down a little bit more as we go out in future years as the county's expecting us to pay off some of this debt. So in, at 6.30.20, we really thought we were gonna be way above this line. And we thought so because one, we hadn't received a lot of the CARES funding. We had no idea what kind of relief we were gonna get. We had just, we had nothing to go on at first. Then in June, we got a lot of advances. So we got you know, money from the safety net care pool. Some of this we are gonna have to pay back in the recruitments. We've got the county HPAC money that they paid early. And we also, uh, the government approved GME which was a, a 9.5 million that we hadn't expected. So we started the year out really well, right? So then as you move down to where we are today, right here, we also look very good, despite the fact that we've got the loss, right? And that's my next slide, so keep that in mind. And then as we project to year end, I think we're gonna be fine too, as long as these recoupments don't come in. We don't get these demands for these payments for the recoupments going back many years ago. And again, I'll remind you what those are. They're on the next slide. And then if you look forward, my forecast assumes that we're gonna just kind of keep building up on that line of credit. And then by the end of the year, we're gonna go over our limit. Keep in mind, we have not done our budget yet. Right, so if we build in performance improvement to the budget, then we have some control over this situation. We did build in um, some additional funds for the SEIU and CNA contracts. The SEIU one, I believe, is being voted on here really soon. There's still more to close, so I still don't have a final number on what all of those will be, but we made some estimates and we did build them in here and um, QIP is one of our supplemental funds. Uh, we didn't think we'd get a payment on that until next year. We actually are gonna get it um, here. So that is gonna help us be below the, where I projected even last month. So it's a 24.6 million improvement at year end. It's being driven off QIP, which is, uh, which is a $31 million improvement offset by the uh, additional um, labor costs. So that's the graphic of the NNB and where we stand on the line of credit. And then this next slide talks about the major drivers, meaning mostly supplemental funding that, that, is, that drives the big swings in our operations. These first items here are those recoupments I was talking about. These haven't changed. The old uh, waiver from 11 to 15, 71.6, the um, FQ um, accrued for our settlement, which we don't know what this will end up being. The Medi-Cal cost reports, which are associated with the same time frame as that waiver and the physician spa. So those have been sitting there, no change. In this um, bottom part, you see the QIP moving from next year to this year. So that's the big plus in June that I just talked about and showed you on the graph, 31 million. 
And then the only other change is HPAC. Um, we originally thought we'd get this in February. Um, we've, we've gotten those invoices together now. We think it's the 40 million will come in in April. And then we've just, we've heard from the county that there's gonna be more funds available. So we're thinking we'll get an additional 5.6 million in June. So that was great news. So then now the why, why is it that we have this loss and yet, you know, our line of credit is uh, in the situation that it is that we haven't seen the loss bring up our line of credit. So um, there's our EBITDA loss, our estimate of cash of 15.7 million that you would have expected that we would have seen our line of credit go up that much. We were able to pay off one of the waivers, 7 million. So that's great news. We uh, can see our measure A receipts coming in better than budget. We're already at 4 million higher. So that's offsetting some of these things. We got um, additional um, cash of 31.7 from COVID. Um, 28 of it is included in the 15.7, but um, the difference between these two is actually helping us on our uh, net negative balance. And then a big factor here is our CapEx. We had planned to spend 60.8 million. We've only spent 13.1 million. So um, this group had a lot of concern about that because when the board approved this 60.8, they said it was essential and it was must have kinds of things. So I'm gonna give you an update on that on the next slide. And, I've, and I talked about the QA, QIP moving forward, which is helping us too, because that money wouldn't have been expected until next year, and now it is in this year. Any questions on that? Uh, one question, Kim. Uh, certain tax-related payments that we get, like Measure A, and then there was a note in your report about um, district tax revenue for, for Alameda. When the, are we... Uh, are we paid a fixed amount that the county or in this case Alameda guarantees that we're going to get paid or if the tax proceeds are, are more than expected, are we entitled to the entire tax proceed? Yes. Yeah, so with COVID, uh, the county and so did Alameda Health System think that our that the tax revenue would draw, but it is doing way better than both of us. Uh, predicted. So what happens is there's a total um, remittance of which AHS gets 75% and the county gets 25%. And so that's how it's split up. And it is much better than we thought. When we first went into shelter in place, we saw this big drop and then it has, it has actually been never really dropped as much as we thought and kind of been slowly picking up. So it's really been great news, not only for Alameda, but also for the county. And is the source of that, is it is it real estate taxes or sales tax or? So this is mostly sales tax, as I understand it. Yes, that's my understanding also. And this, does the same apply to the Alameda uh, district tax? So that is a special assessment that the uh, that is done um, for um, uh, people that live out on the island. So that's different. It's not a sales tax. Right. It's not. It's a, that is a property tax. Yeah. And if it comes in higher than expected, uh, 
that's for a healthcare district, isn't that correct? That's correct. So the, does that so mean the, that, that Alameda Hospital is entitled to all of it? Uh, if there well, is well, the the district um, they have to pay their operating costs, and so the district determines how much they can um, provide to us. They give us an estimate, and then in this last year, they actually um, were able to give us more money than we had expected. Is that the only district hospital we have? Is San Leandro also a district? No, San Leandro is not a district. Okay. All right. So um, this is the slide on the capital expenditures. So um, AHS leadership, both administrative and clinical, um, did a deep dive, went through um, all of our uh, areas, our um, facilities, talk to physicians, um, really did a deep dive to see, okay, you know, we haven't been spending what is really needed. Um, so Mark Fratsky uh, led this effort. And as a result, we've identified 9.5 million that we plan to spend before the end of the fourth quarter. This I do not believe will be the entire list because there's still some stuff bubbling up, but this is what's been identified as of the as of this point in time. And it the cost will be $9.5 million. And these are the items here. And I don't want to put you on the spot, Mark, but if you want to make any comment or Yeah, I mean it was a great process. I think the staff felt and the leadership team felt engaged during the process. Um, we thought we could raise it up to 20 if we needed to. So to come in at 9.5 um, was a good thing for us. It leaves us a little wiggle room for any emergency capital that may come in um, for the remainder of the year. So what does that lead you to expect for next year's capital budget? Is there going to be a catch-up uh, um, no, there won't be a catch-up, Alan. I mean, we'll have to we, – the good thing about the process we went through is that we kind of now have um, a beginning of a list for fiscal year, July 1st of this year. I mean, we've got to go through it again and, and refine it, but uh, it won't be playing catch-up. In fact, this – 9.5 felt a little like catch up to me because we hadn't spent a whole hardly any money until this 9.5 million. So because there's a budgeting of 60 and by the time we end this 13 plus 9.5 is going to take us to just under 25 million. That means that we're going to have a rollover of 35 million of unspent funds for this. Um, and I know we'll get into the budget projections at some point. Um, yeah, so so we're one of the great things about the process that that Mark is has done is that he's actually identifying, you know, when we could do some of those projects because you know we have limited resources. We can't do everything at once. And so I think that um, Mark and the team have have been prioritizing things and will really help us get a get our hands around what is needed and when it's needed for next year and then going out even more years which will help us also in on our strategic plan to, 
pick just one last comment, um, Trustee Esteen. When, when we do get the new capital budget for next year, to Kim's point, we will we will probably purchase by quarter. Um, if if the cap if the capital budget is say thirty million, we'll purchase. We'll break divide that by four and try to as best we can cash flow it over the course of the year so we aren't buying 30 million in one month so to speak yeah this is exciting yeah and we have to be careful because you know we want to we want to uh, uh, do our best to um, abide by the terms of the NNB so all right that is my presentation. I've got some uh, some slides in the appendix. Does anyone have any questions or want me to go over anything in the appendix? Well, I had one question on the balance sheet, Kim. There's a, a $93 million asset called Deferred Outflow of Resources as, a, I think, a long-term asset. Oh, on a uh, for our retirement plans, is that the credit that we're reducing? Um, it's on the asset side. Um, it's on page thirty of the of the uh, slide deck. How about I look it up and I get back to you? Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Kim. I got to say, I appreciate your participation a great deal, Alan. You always have such a keen eye uh, for these numbers. Our next item on the agenda is B2, our Chief Operating Officer Report. And uh, that would be Mark Pratsky, who I think is going to dictate. <laughs> you, are exactly right. you are exactly right, Tristina C. Um, last month, you heard from one of our business units, the ambulatory area, and Dr. Um, one, one of our physicians at the time, um, Palav, gave the, gave the update. Today, it's our, in keeping in that cadence of giving updates on business units, Today is our acute care setting or our acute care business unit. And Janet McInnes is here tonight to um, report out on that. So Janet, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'll ask you to excuse my voice. I took a trip and came back with no voice. So it's not COVID, I just lost my voice. So um, Ahmad is going to project my screen and I'll go through this quickly and then uh, take questions at the end. Can you see the screen? We can, thank you so much. Okay. All right, so this is the April report. Uh, it is obviously lagging data uh, where it will refer to the um, period of January and February, 2021. So um, this uh, report is mostly on operational metrics, but uh, once again, like the last report, it'll, it'll show that COVID is really the high impact uh, we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, though. We had a little surge bump in December and January of this year, um, and now we're starting to ride that out with uh, a lot fewer cases than we had. So uh, in terms of throughput, if we look at uh, all of the acute care campuses, uh, our observed length to stay um, are exceeding target with an overall of 1.03 versus a target of 110. So uh, Alameda, 
uh, is the outlier right now um, at 1.11. And this is really due to the high acuity that they had. Uh, they had a significant surge uh, for COVID in January and it really threw their acuity up. And so um, their ICUs were really impacted and that's, that's what's reflective there. Uh, I do anticipate that it'll come back down. Um, if we look at border hours, uh, again, just to refresh from last time, Highland measures their border hours in terms of patients admitting that are waiting for beds in the ED. San Leandro and Alameda, because they don't usually have those issues, um, their border hours are measured based on admits to John George that are waiting. And so um, if you look at January and February, the bulk of the border hours are um, at Highland with 1891 and 17. Uh, 35, those are patients waiting that have been admitted, but waiting for beds. Uh, Alameda, for the first time uh, that since I've been here, actually held people in their uh, ED in January, again, because of the high COVID numbers that they saw. And then San Leandro's numbers uh, bumped up in December and January, and they're on their way back down again. So uh, looking at Alameda and San Leandro, it really um, didn't have anything to do with uh, John George being impacted, but they had just no movement anywhere to be able to process uh, patients and then move them through the continuum. 30-day uh, acute care all-cause readmit. Uh, we're targeting a 5% relative reduction uh, throughout the system. And so, Ahmad, if you can scroll up a little bit, um, you'll see, oh, down, I guess. I always go the other way. Here we go. Um, so we'll see for the system that they're meeting uh, their target um, of 11.91. Uh, Alameda is at 13.19 and still green, but again, it goes back to the 5% reduction. Everybody's metrics are a little bit different, but we're looking for an overall reduction uh, to uh, uh, be uh, lower overall. So is that confusing to anyone? It's the um, all-cause 30-day readmit every acute is going to have a different number but we're looking at the end of the year to have an overall five percent reduction but uh, i i gotta ask you a question about that um are you saying like say at highland that we're going to go from 11.9 percent to 6.9 percent which is a five percent reduction or are we going to just be at 95 percent of where we are right now uh, it's so it's overall, so it'll factor in. Highland typically will not dip significantly that way. So they're looking at a 5% reduction across the system. I don't know if that answers your question, but there's no way that they were going to get to 5% or uh, to, you know, whatever you were called, six per. Okay. So, so we're saying, so, you know, just eyeballing it for Highland, a 5% reduction is going to be somewhere around I don't know, maybe six tenths of a day, something like that. Yeah, if, if, if but they typically reduce based on the other ones bringing them down. So there's a lot of work uh, being done around identifying what's driving the readmissions. Um, but if you know they're up in November, December, uh, January, they're coming down. I don't anticipate them going much lower than the eleven point nine. They they may get to the eleven point four five. But it would be a pretty significant jump. And what is, you know, if you were to look at readmissions in other comparable uh, county hospitals in big cities in the state, are they in that same range where we are? 
Uh, we're a little high, uh, actually, in terms of that, but uh, this is pretty much the 11 is a pretty uh, steady national average. So it's pretty comparable um, so, if we looked at intercity. Yeah, so Trustee Fox, um, I'd like to see us 10% or below for a system and at all sites. That's typically um, getting into the area of best practice. If you can get down to 8%, that's even better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a. It, you know, it's a pretty significant lift, but again, uh, the others drive us down, but work to be done for sure. Well, I would just throw out there, and it's not, it's easy for me to say, because it's what you guys have to do it, but if we are worse than comparable hospitals by a significant degree, then I would hope that we could improve by more than 5% in a year. Let me make a note and bring that data back next time. So I, I'd be curious what comparable hospitals. I mean, if we were, if we were, let's say, at the mean, then five percent, or it, you know, ab- above the mean, better than the mean or the median, then I think that five percent would probably would be a a good goal. But if let, let's say we're at the twenty fifth percentile, I'm, and I don't know, I'm just throwing that right. out. Right. But then you know, it might be more urgent to have an improvement of more than five percent. Agree. Agree. Great. Let me get that data and we'll be able to make a better comparison next time. Okay. You know, we're going to have an educational moment um, in a later part of the agenda. And I wonder, um, Kim, maybe we should track this because I think one of the questions that comes to me is how are we working on this with the county? You know, that we can't solve this on our own. This is an issue that really is comprehensive and that needs to be managed in in a much more um, meaningful way than we can do on our own, even though we're talking about the statistics as our system. um, You know, I'm curious what the other hospitals look like that are within the county that are not um, county run or AHS run, uh, how they look and and are we shouldering the majority of the burden, even though um, our same patient population may be matriculating into those sites as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I'd love us to bring back all the tactics that are being done to try to decrease this percent. Um, I can tell you that um, at the last organization I was with, we worked this percent down to below 10. It was right around eight. And I think some of the best, and we, we can try to find this, I think some of the best practice hospitals that are non um uh, you know, safety net hospitals like ours are into that five to eight percent range. So we're we're approaching we're approaching best practice, I believe, but we're not there yet. And so, um, having the board understand the tactics we're using, I think, would be really good from an education perspective, and maybe um, some new ideas can come from that. I want to add to though that I believe for all cause there's two different we have readmits and then we have cause uh, behavioral health is rolled into that and so that uh, drives the number and to to your point I think that's something that we really should look at how yeah. how how big of a percentage do they hold and then how much is that driving yeah down? let's bring it back Janet for more refinement okay. I agree I think that'd be great I I do have some questions about behavioral health and I know there'll be more statistics to yeah. follow okay sounds good. All right, in terms of labor, uh, you know, I touched on this when Kim was talking, but our, uh, you know, we're, we're recovering from the COVID leave. Staff were obligated to come back January 1st. We sound like we still have some outliers. Um, we are looking at our traveler 
uh, staff every two weeks to look at, you know, where are we at with that? We get reports and graphs. Um, most contracts for 13 weeks in duration. So we brought these people on in January. Um, those contracts are just starting to end. We also were able to end uh, six, six ICU contracts in San at Alameda um, because their census had dropped so dramatically. And so we paid uh, the early ending penalty, which was far cheaper than keeping people on. Um, if you remember the people that we brought in in January and December um, were at the high rate of 180 to $200 an hour. And so those were one-time contracts. They were not to be renewed. Um, and we needed to let those end in, in December and uh, March or cancel them earlier if we didn't need them. So um, the desire is still certainly to recruit and fill these positions that have travelers in them and uh, only use them during the winter flu season. Um, Again, staffing is one of the areas that we can manage our expenses. So we've purchased a platform for called Ansos, which will allow us to track in real time. We can review how many staff do we need? How many staff do we actually have on the unit? Um, and then do real time learning with the, uh, the managers and the assistant managers to say, you know what, you were over by half an FTE yesterday. Somebody should have went home. Um, you know, just that kind of daily management so that people will get comfortable and will start to staff appropriately. Uh, we also created a centralized staffing office. And so the, the unions have been noticed. This will start in May. Uh, all the staffers and schedulers will be located in, uh, excuse me, Highlands uh, in the transfer center area. They've got the same manager and they've got a lot of space in there. So uh, more continuity, a lot more flexibility in terms of managing uh, the staff and then a decrease in grievances for overtime. Uh, sitters, Mark and I uh, are on the same page on this. We have a, a, a really large overutilization of sitters on our units. We need to recognize that, um, you know, for 5150s or 5250s, you absolutely need to have a sitter on those patients. But uh, I've been asking for daily reports and then I rounded today on the units and um, one unit had uh, I believe four or five patients uh, with four or five sitters and the patients were um, actually sleeping, you know, and then I, I came back around after lunch just to see, you know, because the comment was, well, when they wake up, they climb out of bed and they're pulling at their, their lines, same patients were still sleeping. And so, um, you know, I think there's some opportunity there to recognize what are some other tactics that we can use to manage our, our uh, patients who are at risk for falling or at risk of being agitated um, without always putting a sitter on them to sit around the block. So there might be certain times during the day when you put a sitter on where people are more active and then certainly at night or uh, into the morning if they're sleeping, have somebody close by listening for the bed alarms, but you don't need to have uh, two people parked at the bedside. So, um, and then this Thursday, I'm actually looking at with a group of people, Avisure, which is a telemetry sitter so every room has cameras. They watch these patients at a bank like a telemonitor. Um, and you can typically watch between eight and 10 patients at a time. Um, it works very well. Uh, you can talk to the people in the room. You can alert a nurse that they need to go into the room. Um, so we're, we'll look at that. I think the return on investment would be significant. Um, and we'd allow our CNAs to get back on the units and care for patients. So um, Ms. Mills and Gray. Mm -hmm. I have a question about uh, sitters and, and 5150s and holes, because a moment ago we talked about um, border time in Alameda Hospital and at San Leandro Hospital are also related to psych holds and waiting for beds at John George. How does this impact um, 
the safety of the unit in our smaller settings, like our small ER, where these patients might be held. And, and if we do remove our staff, which typically can help with safety, um, what are the creative ways that we're gonna maintain? So in the, in the smaller, in the other ED, they have sitters. So every 5150 has to have a one-to-one -one sitter. So we wouldn't be removing them and putting them under the aperture. Um, sitters on the units, Highland is the only uh, 5150 admitting, 5250 admitting. So they at San Leandro and Alameda cannot typically have 5150s on the unit. So these would just be your fall risk or patients that are pulling at lines or people that, you know, you typically may place a sitter, but they don't necessarily need to have a sitter. Does that answer your, your question? Um, so it sounds like in the ERs, you still have to have a sitter, but in the inpatient unit, it's a different requirement. And that's according to hospital-wide policy, system-wide policy. Yeah, so in the, in the ER, you would need to have a sitter for a 5150. You would have to have a sitter for any 5150, whether they were inpatient or ED. Mm -hmm. A lot of the sitters on the units now are for people who are pulling at lines or, you know, crawling out of bed. Um, mm -hmm. Typically, what works really well is to mobilize these patients, you know, feed them, give them something to do, keep them active, um, and they don't they don't have that desire to, to you know, crawl out of bed. So, um, so Trustee Estine, I, I, I would like to comment on a little too, you know, um, what type of restraint a patient needs is really dependent upon their acuity and their condition. There are so many quivers um, that we can use, if you will, um, arrows with what inner quiver for, for um, sitters. Mm -hmm. Things such as four rails up, a sitter, um, maybe some type of medication, which can be considered a restraint and needs to be documented. Mm -hmm. um, there, so there it's just a matter of continually reassessing the patient's needs and meeting them with the right kind of restraint given their condition at any given time and frankly the condition changes hour to hour day to day so the continual assessments always need to be done on these patients yeah all the beds have uh, excuse me bed alarms so we're alarmed when people are moving around so um, there's a lot of, as Mark said, a lot of other things that we do. You know, when we used to have visitors, we'd have family at the bedside or we'd have a low bed, high visibility, uh, different things like that to mitigate the, the use of sitters. Right now, it's easy uh, to slap a sitter on, but it doesn't necessarily help the patient. Certainly, we don't, uh, you know, it, we're, we're not utilizing staff appropriately. Gotcha. All right, so uh, don't get a break. There's a penalty paid for that. We've seen about a 40% reduction. Uh, most units are doing very well. There is still one unit uh, at Highland that uh, continues to have um, challenges with this. And so they're working very closely with the VP uh, to try to figure out ways to mitigate that. And it's usually just standard work, assigning breaks, making sure people take their breaks. And so um, that work is being done. John George, uh, the DON has implemented something that will be commonplace for all sites. Uh, she does a daily productivity checklist that she reviews with the managers and the assistant managers. They look at any overtime, um, any penalty pay that they might have utilized, any overstaffing, and they've come around nicely with, with their productivity. Um, I'm happy to report on clinical education. There's a lot of uh, good things happening on that. Uh, San Leandro has 
uh, um, the, uh, uh, and Alameda have done their annual competencies by using um, subject matter experts on the units, managers, and so that piece is done. Uh, the team advanced training, which is the second half of um, the workplace violence or the what used to be called CPI, is taking place for all of our ED staff at all EDs, uh, and that will be completed by June 1st. And so there are uh, educators doing the hands-on training at every site. These people are certified within our system. So um, clinical education department is rebuilding. Uh, both John George and San Leandro have hired permanent educators. Uh, so those are, uh, will be one, uh, San Leandro is on board right now. John George will come in May 1st. Alameda has an interim uh, educator and um, we are actively recruiting for that position. Uh, Highlands has an educator that uh, we are utilizing right now um, in an interim basis. She's one of our very savvy RNs. She's doing a gap analysis for the entire uh, system using the LMS platform. And so we, we understood that we own LMS. We've had five hours of training for the VPs and uh, different levels to show us what we have that we haven't been utilizing. And so um, Mandeep is doing a very uh, thorough gap analysis and then um, we'll bring on another educator as an interim to assist her with that. They will all complete the modules and then have a skills fair in July. I also interviewed a periop uh, educator and uh, hope to make an offer for her to start May 1st. So that's huge. That's been a position that's been uh, open since uh, more than a year. So lots of work being done there. Um, I will post the clinical education director position this week and we'll start to source and, and uh, try to recruit a really strong candidate for that. So um, I'm very happy with the way it's, it's going. People are very pleased. Um, Lots of hard to fill positions in the OR and ICU. And so we've started a training program where we will uh, use our internal training and only for our own employees. San Leandro will create two ICU positions, both 0.8 FTEs one night, one day. And they'll also create a 1.8 FTE position for OR training. Alameda will create three ICU positions, a 0.8, a 0.6, uh, and a PM. And then they'll have two OR positions and then Highland will create six OR and five ICU positions. So we're gonna train internally. Um, that will allow us to retain these hard to fill positions and then grow our own staff and offer uh, them some opportunities internally. So uh, the unions have all blessed this. Everybody's on board and very excited about it. So that will we'll start in May. Following that, we'll also start training uh, OR techs, uh, sterile processing techs in the coming year uh, internally as well. These might be uh, dietary people or EBS people that want to um, take some additional training and have some additional opportunities. Um, if you look at this graph over time is starting to come back down and I think uh, Kim alluded to that. Uh, nicely, we had a little bump. If you look again in uh, you know January and now it's starting to come back down because we um, are not having to use the people to backfill the COVID leaves and we don't have to staff up with uh, higher acuity in the, on, the, on the units. So that's basically the report. Uh, 2021 has come in with a lot of change, but we've got, I think, a lot of hope and optimism. Um, the majority of our staff are back. We've given a tremendous number of vaccines. We've got new leadership in many uh, areas with a fresh uh, ideas and a renewed energy. Um, and then 2020, we can really reflect back on our resiliency and all the 
the things that we did last year that I don't think anyone would have anticipated that we could have done. Um, nursing practice will take on a new focus uh, as our nursing staff are on a journey to become highly skilled and uh, you know uh, do really well what they do each day. We also have the score survey results that will come back and we look forward to the feedback from our staff um, that we can collaborate and, and uh, you know open things up with transparency. So um, any questions? I'm super excited to hear about the, the nurse educators who have started, who are starting and the, the more to come plus, did you say it was a director position? Yes, so Ranji uh, has uh, step down um, and so we'll, we'll uh, recruit for that position but really looking at uh, a dynamic leader that will be able to you know look at nursing practice overall and then really drive us in a direction that we can continue to build and, and roll forward. So yeah I'm as excited as you are believe me. Yeah and the new training position in the ICU and the OR this program is going to be phenomenal. When's the last time that there was a, an in-house training like this? Uh, well, we did a new gra new grad program, but it was for outside, um, not in my tenure, which is only two years. But um, I, I think it's been quite a while, and it was kind of a home baked uh, uh, thing. So the uh, the critical care is through LMS. It's 16 weeks where they have uh, online modules to work through, and then they I'll give an example. If they do the cardiac module, then they would be paired with a preceptor uh, in the ICU and look after cardiac patients for a week. So they really get that. Um, muscle memory. And then um, the OR is also 16 weeks. Uh, it's done by the AORN. Uh, and then they would have the same thing where they work through modules and then they would be put into the OR for the training. So, um, yeah, super excited. It's And the unions were um, really excited. Nobody, I mean, there were a few questions, but um, just all engaged and ready to move forward. Yeah, this is great. And, all right. Well, thank you. Do we have any questions regarding the report we just heard? All right. Barring none, we will move along to item C1, an update on our finance staffing vacancy. All right. So uh, I'm going to circle back to answer uh, uh, Trustee Fox's uh, question on the deferred outflow of resources. So I did pull the balance sheet. I was correct. It, it does relate to the retirement plan. This is the ACERA um, deferred outflow. There's also a deferred inflow down in the liability section. And these come off the actuary report. It's an amortization that occurs over five years. So um, happy to give you a copy of the report, uh, Trustee Fox, if you want to see it. Um, uh. No, I think I I think I get what's going on. Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of odd this time because we are we do have that credit because we're reducing our li overall liability on the books, and then we also have our current accrued, and it's a five-year amortization, so it is complicated and confusing. <laughs> okay, so this is um, is this part the credit that's being uh, amortized? So well, so what we what we had for this year is we were because the investment returns were so much better, and um, and it goes out five years, right? But we we actually had too much of a liability on our books, so we're doing it instead of doing it all at once is what what other organizations might do. We're doing it a little bit each month, and we did that because 
the budget was so late in the process, we just went ahead and, and uh, are doing a monthly accrual on it. So it's, it's uh, an offset to the liability. Yes, yes. So happy to share it with you if you want, if you want more information. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay, so in regard to finance staffing, Yes, I do recognize it is my responsibility to make sure that we have adequate um, uh, staff to perform the functions in the finance structure or the finance organization. And yes, I have had you know some uh, turnover and some key positions, but I feel confident that um, that I've got a team that can do the job, and I am doing an assessment, um, uh, and I. I I, it's going to take me some time, um, but I do recognize the responsibility and I'm not losing sleep over my team. And I don't think any of you all should either. Any comments on that or thoughts or discussion? No, I think it's great. It's exciting to know that as people leave, we can bring in skilled replacements. Um, vacancies can be a little something to lose sleep over, but we won't lose sleep with you at the helm, Kim. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. And that brings us into our fiscal year 2022 budget update. All right. Let me share my screen here. Everybody see it? All right. Okay. So it's an advance for me here. Not why sometimes it works. There we go. Okay, so we've uh, we've shared the guiding principles. Uh, these were adopted by the um, finance committee, and um, these will also be included in the board of trustees uh, discussion uh, next week. Uh, just to remind everybody, we're adopting a practical run rate approach, and. It is a pre-COVID run rate, we, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, the external factors that we will layer on top of will be a COVID impact. So we're doing a lot of analysis here, and we will come back to the team to let you all know how you know how we think COVID will impact next year. Um, we are also looking at some other things like the impact of 340B, and there's some policy changes um, that we'll be addressing. We want it to be sustainable. I understood from this group that our goal is to create a break-even operating margin. So that would be after depreciation. There is a typo there. It says operation margin. Um, but that we're not going to try to generate cash flow to pay back prior year recruitments. Uh, and we want to have a stretch. So we are going to look for continuous but, uh, improvement and we are going to stretch ourselves. So this is the budget process. We're in the April-May timeframe, which is where our leaders are reviewing their budgets. So they're looking to make sure that we haven't missed anything, that everything's in line. Uh, they are truly our quality control check and they can escalate issues that they see when, uh, when they review the budget. Uh, April and May is when we start looking at what kind of performance improvement we need to build into the budget. So there's a lot of work going on right now doing performance, looking at what our opportunities are and what's realistic to build into the budget. Um, 
there we are going to add some sort of a um, uh, update at the April retreat that's kind of out of our calendar cycle normally we wouldn't be doing a preliminary to you in May but we'll figure that out as time goes on and then in the June July we get final board approval and we load our budget for the next year the next slide is the volumes um, really it's just here to let you know that we're pretty flat to our budget um, that's uh, this column right here not a lot of change at all and then if you look to our variance from the pre-COVID period this is actual we've we're seeing a lot uh, we're seeing increases in the acute areas pretty flat everywhere else I think there's a little uh, issue with discharges here but other than that everything is really consistent so this is where we are um, as we've mentioned before we're starting in a hole our baseline budget was 12 months ended 22820 that was a pre-covid period we have had to true up for 14 months of uh, cpi uh, we did adjust supplementals based on our preliminary budget for next year uh, we did but uh, true up it and east bay medical group because it with the implementation of epic where there were some significant changes. We had capitalized labor. Now we have them in operations as well as a lot of other changes with our legacy systems versus Epic. And then East Bay Medical Group was stood up. So that was uh, definitely a whole new um, large change to the organization. Uh, so far, the Budget Oversight Committee has um, worked through the following uh, assumptions. Um, first, we tried to are working on eliminating all those vacancies. You saw the 191 vacancies in my slide in the finance presentation. That represents that gap between the lines. Everybody remember? Do I see nods? Yes, yes. Okay, so we we don't really we don't want to build in all of those FTEs and cause a greater hole to try to make up. So we have uh, worked on our labor standards and we have trued those up. Uh, we've got uh, some projections on CPI using Vizient. Um, there are changes to the volume. You saw the, the acute changes there. Um, but there's also the factor that now we are on EPIC. So we took those volume indicators and we applied the EPIC gross charges where we're currently operating today. And that is a $20 million increase, in, which I will call a volume increase. There is still a net revenue impact to come. So we do have a plus coming. Um, there's a, a placeholder for wage CPI and for benefits. Uh, overall, we've managed to, to control those to a $25 million positive. Then to get us to the budget goal, a zero net income or operating income, we need to find 99.2 million of improvements. And I also left EBITDA on here, which is cash flow, which is 42 million. So we've got our work cut out for us. Here are the, some of the areas that we're looking at. This is not meant to be an all-inclusive list, but these are the, some of the key areas that we're looking at um, and setting targets, pushing ourselves to try to close that gap. And our current focus now is 
to allow the managers to do their review. Um, as I mentioned before, it's really critical that, that they look at their budgets. They know their business. They need to make sure that, you know, we've, we've got this right. Um, as I said, we're doing this opportunity analysis on what I'll call those balloons. Um, it's very important that we get champions and we get their commitment on these targets and that we build these performance so we can monitor our progress all throughout the year and I can communicate with all of you. And again, we've added on this additional item to try to have something together for, for you all for the retreats. Last slide here is just how we're doing on the timeline. Not a whole lot's changed except for we had a real struggle getting the um, run rate budget out to staff. We had uh, system issues and we were delayed by a good three weeks, which is really pushing us to get this um, performance improvement review done and get these presentations done. So the team is really working hard. Uh, we do have our new leader on board, um, Grace Messina. We're all excited to have her here. Um, she's coming right at this crunch and we really need her, but the, the team has really stepped up. They've been working really hard and doing a great job and I'm really proud of all the progress they've made. So that's my presentation on the budget update. Any questions, comments? Ninety nine is a big hole. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. I, I want to, if I may, it's James, and I want to just commend Kim and her staff, uh, Julie Shu and others, for the work that they've done to really frame the the issue, if you will, because there was uh, not a lot of um, understanding, I think, it, throughout the organization about the budgeting process. Um, Kim led a meeting earlier this week with all of the leaders about how the budgeting process is going to work. It was extraordinarily well received. And I think that there is a, a clarity. We still don't have resolution, but now there's a clarity and understanding across the organization that I think um, is um, appreciated. And I think it's going to pay dividends for us going forward. Um, I do want to acknowledge that the action to take out those open FTE positions has um, created some consternation across the organization. And that's because traditionally they've been allowed to hold those positions open and keep them in the budget. But we felt that it was imperative for us to take those out in order for us to begin moving towards creating a balanced budget. Um, the, the action that we have to take is that when positions are approved and the need is articulated, we've got to move really expeditiously to get those positions filled. That's what we owe our leaders because they fear that if they don't have those positions in their back pocket that they'll never be able to get things filled and they won't be able to run their shops and so it's kind of a, a bit of a trade-off if you will but um more work to come but again kudos to kim and her team for getting us this far and we're optimistic yeah james and, and, and james i might have a comment or two 99 million does seem like a lot no doubt about it but i can't tell you how excited i am to figure out how to close it and I, I got to tell you, um, our leaders and staff are coming up with ideas every day. We know we've got tremendous opportunity yet in, in the rev cycle and the supply chain and in labor management um, discipline. Um, even our East Bay Medical Group coming together less than probably a year ago, there's tremendous opportunity there to help support 
um, our physicians and moving them into a more efficient state as well. So there's just opportunity around every single corner. And we'll figure it out. Um, and it, but the gap does seem large right now. I, I, it, I, I hear you. The question, um, and maybe you covered this, but I might have missed it. Is there opportunity in uh, payer, nego- payer rate negotiations, contract negotiations? Yeah, so we're, we have a, a strategy and we have, uh, we actually engaged with a company to help us since we don't have any, any staff that fill that role within AHS. Uh, so this, the company was engaged in December and uh, we are already seeing some positive uh, impacts. Right now, there's like uh, there's six different sets of templates that we're negotiating with payers. And I will come back once we've once we've gotten a little further along. I think we've got them slated, uh, Trustee Esteen, um, in July to come back, if I remember right. Uh, it's on our on our uh, tracker, mm-hmm. uh, and by then we should have closed some of these, and we'll be able to um, share you know some of the impact from it. So I guess the question is, will you have some of these? nailed down in time to include them in the budget or will they be like bridge plan items? Um, I'm gonna try to get as much of them in the budget as I can and get those things closed. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really been a, a good process. Um, we haven't talked about it here yet, but we had we were not contracted in a lot of places. And as you can imagine, Trustee Fox with a trauma center, you don't want to give away that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been a it's been rough to, to to negotiate some of these, but I think it's going well, and I am looking forward to, to providing you all a report. Good. Um, I had a question about vacancies, and then I started thinking about not having anyone on staff to negotiate payer rates, um, which seems curious. Um, especially because that was a gap that we hadn't taken advantage of over time. Uh, and I wonder if that's a position that should be brought in house, but that's for a different time to discuss. Let me, let me just comment. So again, that's my responsibility. <laughs> um, so if we can negotiate you know, two and four year agreements and only 8% of our payer mix, actually less than eight is commercial payers. And if we can get multi-year um, um, contracts in place, I don't think we need to have negotiators on staff. And one of the reasons why I opted to go this route is that these people know the negotiators in the plans. If I hire somebody, they got to start over. Maybe I could find somebody that has these relationships, but I was able to engage with them now, and they were able to hit the ground running. They know who to what number to call. They know how to build the templates. Uh, Epic has been a big help um, for us, our, our BI team, because before with five different legacy systems, we couldn't get data. So it's been a really a, it's, it's been a very positive um, move for us. And I'm, I'm probably going down a rabbit hole and that's how excited I am about it. But I, I'm glad that I'm here in my seat now that you know we actually have Epic in place. <laughs> Just a follow-up question. Kim, on that topic, and that is, is it possible that these negotiations with the commercial payers could could lead to more utilization of our uh, our clinics and, and departments than uh, than we've been getting in the past? We we would very much like that. So particularly at Alameda and San Leandro, 
and there has been some discussions about that uh, but no real commitments um, we did do one new agreement but i we haven't really seen any much volume with it um, so we can we can uh, i can i'd rather just bring back more of a formal presentation to you uh, but uh, yes we would very much we can we certainly would like more volume in the, those two community hospitals. We absolutely need it in Alameda. Um, my question about the, the vacancies is with $26 million uh, coming from the elimination of vacant positions, I'm curious about how long those positions have been vacant. And I just want to get clarification on um, if department leaders hadn't filled those positions um does that mean the position is not needed or does it mean that the process was too slow to hire so the process we used which was uh, an assumption given to us by the budget oversight committee was that if the position has been vacant for six months or more and we haven't identified anybody in other words we don't have somebody that we think is going to start we would eliminate it and uh so the idea here is that you know we've typically historically worked on this idea of an FT or a, a human being, a, a, a seat in a chair, so to speak, instead of really focusing on our labor hours needed. And so this is a step towards getting us in that direction. But what we've told all of our um, managers is that no longer do you are you required to have an FTE a human being uh, uh, from a position control standpoint, uh, head in a chair uh, in your budget to come forward to ask for additional staffing. So we're trying to break that link because what that has caused the organization to do is to build in every possible situation that they think might happen in the next year because they couldn't even come forward and ask for an FTE unless it was in the budget. So we wanted to break that. And so this is how we did it. And I think it will actually help us get it to a better place, um, uh, understanding the true FTE that are needed in every department in the whole organization. It'll take us time. Yeah, I think that is often uh, one of the issues is hiring can be really slow, especially in governmental agencies. Um, so does that mean that there's policy changes to match or is yeah, this a practice change? Yes, um, Trustee Esteen, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I've in the past couple months I've been here, I've heard over and over again how slow the hiring process is from the time of requesting a replacement or a new FTE to the time they come in the door. And we are very committed to the organization to really condense um, the approval process and the hiring process. In fact, this week I met with Kim and the recruitment team to start to understand how we can minimize that time um, because it really is onerous right now on, on our leadership. And, you know, if, if we expect people to have to sub submit to asking for their FTEs. It's our responsibility to make sure the process is efficient. And that's what we're gonna do. How long does it take now to bring people on board? Oh gosh. Six months, a year? You know, I can tell you on the front end, Trustee Blue, it was taking up to 
two to three weeks just to get a position approved, a replacement position. Then by the time it's approved, it goes over and gets posted, and then the recruitment process starts. So, you know, all in all, it could take two to three months to get a, a person in the door. Yeah. And people won't wait around that long. No, I mean, we lose people. Um, we have frustrated leaders. Um, none of it's good. Yeah. But these I positions were more than six months old. So yes. if they were in the act of active hiring, did those positions get eliminated? Or was this uh, was that also a consideration? Well, if they had someone identified, then we did not cut them. So if they if they were in the interview process and they were about to make an offer, then obviously we would not have cut that. And there's going to be exceptions, and we will have to manage those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that happens a lot, actually. Not only within, you know, the county, but in other uh, businesses, places of business, and they call it a structural deficit. <laughs> right. So I'm glad you guys are keeping an eye on that because that's a pain. It's just a pain. Yeah. All right. Are there any further questions regarding this agenda item? Okay. So I am super excited to bring in a new portion of our agenda, uh, which is going to be a regular occurrence in our finance committee, which is an educational piece. And we will have guests come and join us. And today our esteemed guest is Tangerine Brigham, I'm sorry, Tangerine Brigham, oh, frog in my throat, who is our CAO of Population Health. And she's going to give us a riveting presentation about our county organized health system. Well, that's at the standard high. <laughs> I, I don't know how riveting uh, it will be, but hopefully it will be informative. So let me just share my screen. Give me a moment. Can you see my uh, screen? Sorry about uh, the phone there. So what um, this presentation is really designed to do is to keep the trustees aware of really any proposed changes that are uh, occurring um, at the county level or the health plan level related to managed care. Um, And that's really because um, many of our patients, almost uh, more than 40% of our patients um, are in Medi-Cal managed care. Uh, Now this particular presentation doesn't have a a short-term or immediate financial impact, um, but if it is implemented, there may be some financial impact Uh, in the future, so we wanted to keep you aware. So the the first slide um, is really, you can think of it as a continuation in some ways of the presentation uh, that Scott Coffin, who is the uh, CEO of Alameda Alliance, gave the finance committee uh, and and perhaps the board um, a few meetings ago. Um, California is unique. Uh, California has been in managed care for many years. 
um, and it has six different models. I'm not going to go through all the models, but I will just focus on two because it does relate to why um, there is an effort to potentially think about a different Medi-Cal managed care model for Alameda County. Currently, the county is in the two-plan model, if you recall from uh, Mr. Coffin's presentation. Um, and in the two-plan model, you have two health plans that compete uh, for Medi-Cal managed care members where those individuals can choose their health plan based on a number of factors. It could be um, providers um, it, in the delivery system, the location of those providers, or any other kinds of aspects that they're interested in. And you see that there are, um, across the state, uh, 19 local initiatives covering uh, 14 counties, Alameda County being uh, one of them. The next model I'll just focus on is the county organized health system, which is what we'll be talking about uh, in detail a little bit later. Under that model, there is no competition between health plans. There is just one single plan that all Medi-Cal managed care members are enrolled in. That is the principal distinction from a beneficiary perspective. Um, there is not choice uh, in the county organized health systems of health plans, but certainly there will be choice of providers. There are six county organized health systems in California um, covering 22 counties. Um, county organized health systems have, have actually been around longer than the two plan model. Um, the first county organized health system in California was in 1983 in Santa Barbara. So um, the state has had a long history, almost 40 years, of having this as a model for Medi-Cal managed care. Um, and then there are uh, four other uh, models, regional, Imperial County, San, Bern uh, San Benito, and geographic managed care. So just to a level set, um, really, how many individuals are we talking about and how many of those Medi-Cal managed care members are with uh, Alameda uh, Health System? There are, as you can see, just over 428,000 Medi-Cal managed care members. 80% of them are in managed care. 20% um, are in fee-for-service, meaning that um, they are not required to enroll in managed care, and they can go to and see any willing provider who um, is part of uh, the state's Medi-Cal system. And if we focus specifically on Medi-Cal managed care, um, you can see the distribution between the two health plans. The lion's share of members are with Alameda Alliance, and then you've got, um, um, sorry, that should be 19%, not 29%, uh, 19% uh, with Anthem uh, Blue Cross. Uh, when we take that down to our level as a provider, we have about 71,000 Medi-Cal managed care members you know, as of uh, last uh, month. And you can see the distribution in terms of percentages where the bulk of them are with Alameda Alliance. Um, and uh, we have just over 20% with Anthem. So why are we having this discussion today? 
So the state of California has decided that it is going to rebid um, the commercial plans. Um, in the two plan model counties, you have a local initiative. The local initiative in Alameda is Alameda Alliance. The commercial plan is Anthem, Blue Cross. Um, there are, as I indicated before, nine other local initiatives and commercial plans. Um, the state has decided to re-procure those commercial plans. For the uh, many of the local initiatives, the initial procurement occurred in the mid to late 1990s. And so the state uh, really wants to determine whether or not the commercial plans that are currently um, providing services to Medi-Cal beneficiaries, if those plans could, should continue either in terms of the quality of care, um, their provider network, uh, their adequacy, uh, their monitoring of uh, complaints and grievances. And so the state has said they want uh, to have new contracts and poten potentially new plans in January of 2024. So, um, a little bit away is away, about more, a little more than two and a half years. When the state indicated that they were interested in this procurement, uh, many counties said, well, uh, we should have an opportunity to rethink uh, the managed care models and the local plan models. You know, perhaps we're a community that has two commercial plans and we'd like to create a local initiative. Or perhaps we're a local initiative and we want to create a county organized health system. Um, as a result of the state procurement, the state decided, all right, we will give counties the opportunities to change their Medi-Cal managed care models if they desire. Um, and if that decision is uh, pursued and the state does agree, the idea would be that uh, in January 2024, there would be a new local plan model in a county. Um, if the state were to decide, let's just say um, there would be a county organized health system uh, in a county and replace that with a two plan model, such as you know Alameda, that would essentially mean that there would be no commercial plan and the state would not procure for a commercial plan in that county. So it is really important that these two um, uh, decision points um, are worked on simultaneously. So, this is quickly, it's sorry it's, to interrupt, Tangerine. Does that mean that there's also no choice for patients if there's only a single plan? Yeah, so there's only, so right, there's currently there's two levels of choices. So, currently in a two plan model county, your first level of choice is your health plan. And you could make that decision based on a number of other of factors. Your friend uh, is in that health plan, so you decide to be in it. Or your another family member, whatever it is, you're making that choice. Then once you're in a health plan, you know, health plans, with the exception of Kaiser, are not providers. So then you have a second level of choice. And that second level of choice is the provider. And you make your provider choice. So what happens, I'm not sure why that, my computer has a mind of its own. Um, so what happens uh, in the county organized health system is that you don't have a choice of health plans, but you do have a choice of providers. 
Now, currently in most local initiatives, uh, providers participate, or rather in most two-plan model counties, providers participate in both health plans. And they do that because they have no idea how an individual will make their choice of plans. And so to ensure that they are available to an individual irrespective of the health plan, you will find that the provider networks of both the commercial plan and the local initiative in a two-plan model are very similar. So it's not as though the provider choice is different um, in a local initiative versus a commercial plan. And the intent um, likely is for the uh, provider network in a commercial or other in a county organized health system to really replicate that. Does that answer the question? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what is um, a local plan? You know, as you can imagine, any um, effort to change the model uh, would require a very robust stakeholder engagement process. And in many ways, uh, local plans are designed for that. You know, they're established uh, by the community um, and certainly uh, Alameda Alliance was. Um, they are formed by state and federal statute. That was the case, um, state or federal, uh, for Alameda Alliance. I will say there is this exception for Contra Costa and Contra Costa is an exception because Contra Costa Health Plan, which is part of the county Department of Health Services in Contra Costa, was created in 1973. Um, it's almost 50 years old. And so they um, um, have always been part of the county. So that is the one um, um, exception to the fact that these local plans are public entities, but they're independent of the county. Um, formed by local ordinance. Um, obviously, um, the governance and the governing body of uh, that membership um, really is reflective of the community and is outlined in um, the ordinance. Um, because it is a public entity, it is subject to uh, uh, act and all of the meeting requirements. And then finally, as a local plan, really the majority of its membership are individuals who are on public health insurance. Um, in this case, for our populations, Medi-Cal. So um, what are the options available to counties? Um, the first option, which is not applicable to us, but is an option would be an instance in which a county um, decides to create a local initiative, very similar to Alameda Alliance, where they're transitioning to the two-plan model and they're either um, creating a new one, as I indicated, or perhaps they're joining an existing local initiative. Um, the second option is the option that um, the county um, is looking at. And when I say the county is looking at this, I mean that um, there was a joint presentation between um, the director of the Healthcare Services Agency, 
um, the director of the Social Services Agency and uh, the CEO of Alameda Alliance to the Health Committee of the Board of Supervisors uh, in February of this year, really talking about um, moving forward with the option of pursuing a county organized health system. And so there are two options that the county could do. It could establish a new county organized health system. Um, uh, and that would be uh, getting rid of the two plan model. So there would no longer be two health plans. And then the local initiative, which is Alameda Alliance, could be that new county organized health system. Or there is the option of joining an existing county organized health system. Um, that is a, a situation in which uh, perhaps a local county organized health system is located in one county, but it serves other counties. So for example, I had mentioned earlier that San, Santa Barbara is a county organized health system. It's been around since 1983. It also covers San Luis Obispo uh, as an example. Uh, Partnership Health Plan of California covers, I believe, um, upwards to 15 counties in its county organized health system. So there are opportunities to either create a new one or join an existing one. Um, the next two slides I thought would be helpful and they're taken directly from the presentation that uh, the county uh, and Alameda Alliance gave to the Board of Health Committee. Um, and I think that this uh, gives you a sense of the differences and the similarities between the two plan model and the county organized health system. And there's really only um, sort of three areas in which, not sure why that keeps doing that, my apologies there. Um, there are only uh, three areas in which they differ. The first having, having to be to do with the beneficiary choice, as I just explained. Instead of there being two health plans, Alameda Alliance and Anthem, there would just be one health plan, Alameda Alliance. The second has to do with covered benefits. The county organized health systems um, have, have historically been responsible for a much broader array of Medi-Cal benefits. Um, you can think of, or you may have heard of a term called carve-outs. Um, there are certain things that are carved out uh, and not the responsibility of two plan model counties, such as long-term care. Uh, uh, another one might be transplants. Well, those are covered services in county organized health systems. So they are doing uh, responsible for much more of that Medi-Cal managed care benefit for its, its members. And then uh, finally, the only other distinction is the Medi-Cal procurement. Because there is only one county organized health system, there isn't a Medi-Cal procurement process. So those are really the distinctions between them. So given that they're very similar, I think the question is, why consider it? Why would you do this? And so I think the county um, and the uh, and Alameda Alliance have outlined 
you know, from their perspectives, you know, what are the considerations around um, moving in this direction? First, the idea that there is better alignment across the entire Alameda County safety net. You know, that safety net includes not only um, Alameda Health System, it includes our community health uh, networks, uh, it includes other uh, providers and hospitals. Um, and so there is a desire to have um, further alignment if there isn't this competition um, with a, another commercial plan. I think from a member perspective, uh, there is the opportunity of better continuity of care and consistency because there is just one plan. Um, that is responsible for all members of a county. There has been data uh, that has been produced showing that um, county organized health systems um, for uh, various reasons, um, their quality scores um, have uh, been higher uh, than in uh, local initiatives. I don't have uh, much intel on that, but that certainly is something that uh, any health plan would want to uh, pursue, which is improved quality and the ability to better target uh, health disparities for their members. There is just the added administratively um, and potentially the reduced administrative costs if there is just one health plan. Um, right now, um, uh, I and my, my colleagues at AHS often have to understand how the prior authorization processes work differently um, with each of the health plans. Um, we are held to perhaps different pay for performance uh, provisions and metrics on their quality initiatives. Um, there are instances in which perhaps uh, claim adjudication processes can be cumbersome. So the idea of uh, having just one plan um, instead of two um, can certainly uh, provide for some efficiency from a provider and from a health plan perspective. Um, and then certainly with a county organized health system, as the state is moving towards CalAIM, which is its effort to really advance and modernize um, Medi-Cal, um, having one infrastructure to do that um, from the county and uh, Alameda Alliance's perspectives could be beneficial. Um, this is just the authorization process. I, I won't spend a lot of time here um, just to say that there are several steps um, at the local level, the state level, and the federal level um, to be able to enact changes in the Medi-Cal uh, um, and that certainly does include getting authorization from CMS. Uh, the state has outlined, um, and I won't go through all the contents here at all, but just to say that um, health plans, uh, the local initiatives um, and the counties will have to submit letters of intent um, around um, their proposal, um, providing information around their financial soundness, um, providing information with respect to their ability to develop an adequate uh, 
provider network that might serve all Medi-Cal beneficiaries. And so all of that information is required and is actually due um, to the state uh, uh, by the end of this month. Um, uh, and that includes a resolution or ordinance from the Board of Supervisors indicating their intent um, to explore and to move forward. Um, in the fall will be the next decision-making um, process around this. The state will determine whether or not um, it will allow a county to go forward to change their model. Um, and if that occurs, as I indicated before, then a commercial plan um, procurement would not occur in that county. And so while the state will simultaneously uh, provide information um, at, around um, which counties will move forward, they will also finalize which counties will have to um, go through an RFP process for the commercial plan. Um, the state is not anticipating um, much activity uh, until uh, early to late 2022 um, when it will go through a full readiness and then it will be in January 2024 with the implementation. So that sort of provides the overview of what, uh, the proposal to move forward with the county organized health system uh, and I'll entertain any questions that you might have. I have a question. Uh, yes. Um, is there any data on uh, quality, patient satisfaction, member satisfaction, or cost and efficiency uh, between uh, plans in a county organized health system and counties where you have a competition between a county sponsored plan and a commercial plan like we have in our county? So the state of California does have what's called a managed care dashboard, which provides some of that information where it compares um, primarily um, HEDIS for quality. Um, it will look at grievances and appeals. It will look at utilization um, data. It generally does not provide cost utilization data, but yes, there are dashboards that are used and that are on the state's website so that uh, a provider and individual member can do that kind of comparison. But what I'm getting at is I just wonder if uh, quality service and efficiency is better in counties where you have two, two plans competing for members, uh, member signups and, and where plans know that uh, if they uh, do not operate efficiently, uh, you know, they can, they can lose membership to the competing plan versus a county situation where there is no complete competing plan. Um, well, I can certainly provide some uh, additional information on that. I will tell you that the state uses the data to, uh, to address exactly what you've said. Um, as I indicated before, individuals will make choices at the health plan level their first choice in a two-plan model county. The state uses um, quality data, uh, utilization data, 
um, essentially to do what's called default enrollment. So not everyone makes a choice of their health plan. That's right. When an individual doesn't make a choice, the state has to default that person to a health plan. The state will use um, the performance of a health plan to determine what percentage of defaults it receives. So for example, in Alameda County, Alameda Alliance receives a higher percentage of defaults than the Alliance because its um, metrics on a number of scales are higher than Anthem. So that's one way in which the state attempts to reward higher performance. That, does that help? Yes. I guess another question I have is, uh, does AHS have, what influence does AHS have over the, the decision that the county might make about which way to go? Um, so we would certainly participate in any uh, stakeholder and uh, effort, but ultimately, ultimately the decision is the county because the county, um, a little bit of history, Counties created local initiatives back in the 90s. Um, counties um, uh, were required to um, move forward with the state legislation. County boards of supervisors seat local initiatives. So ultimately, the health plan um, could not on its own move forward because the state is assuming and putting the responsibility of the creation into the, the county. So we can certainly participate and give input like any other provider, but the ultimate decision maker to move forward is the county working in collaboration with um, Alameda Alliance as the local initiative. And obviously uh, there would be you know some discussions with anthem because this would be a significant uh, change uh, for them uh, and their participation in managed care in this county. Right. Thank you. Do we foresee a county submission by April 30th? By April 30th. Uh, the original submission date was March 31st. Counties could ask for extensions. It's my understanding that Alameda County did. It's also my understanding that uh, uh, this month, the Board of Supervisors will be considering a recommendation that has been forwarded to them by the Health Committee to move forward in this direction. Okay. Uh, any other questions? All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your presentation. We appreciate it a great deal. It was indeed riveting. Oh, my goodness. Your definition of riveting is different from mine. <laughs> well, you did not disappoint. Um, up next, we are going to uh, discuss contracts um, about UC University of California and our chief medical officer, Dr. Jamaluddin, is going to handle this for us. 
good evening, uh, trustees. Uh, this contract is related to the coverage of neurosurgery services for Alameda Health System, and mainly at Highland. Uh, neurosurgery service is a requirement for level one trauma certification. We need to have 24-7 coverage and presence of a neurosurgeon within, I think, 20 or 30 minutes uh, on a call for a trauma uh, call. Uh, we entered into this partnership with UCSF about uh, four years ago, and uh, uh, this has elevated the care of neurosurgery. So in addition to coverage for trauma, we cover clinic of neurosurgery, and we do advanced tertiary care neurosurgery in our system with four days in the OR. Uh, there has been a change in leadership uh, since we started this partnership. It was Mitch Berger uh, initially as a chair. Now it's Edward Chang. I have met with him a couple of times. He continues his commitment to uh, partner to have this coverage here in the East Bay. He even told me that his parents live here and he wants them to get the best care in case they need neurosurgical care. There is no increase in the cost of, uh, of this contract, so it is an extension with the same cost. We are uh, recruiting together with them a third neurosurgeon to uh, share calls with San Francisco General and uh, we are exploring, uh, enhancing uh, some of the services at the neurointensive care and uh, also expanding some of the spine surgery in collaboration with our orthopedic surgeons. Uh, uh, I think you have an executive summary and I'm be happy to answer any questions. Does this also include telemedicine? No, teleneurology is uh, separate. Uh, that uh, neurosurgery uh, is, uh, we don't have telemedicine in this neurosurgery. However, our neurosurgeons have been answering calls of the com for the community hospitals in case there is an emergency and we transfer to Highland. Uh, our uh, teleneurology and neuro uh, neurology services are uh, very closely collaborative with our neurosurgeons. Uh, so in case there are neurology referrals, our neurosurgeons can do tumor uh, resections and they can do very advanced also spine surgeries. Does this also include uh, residents uh, and training of residents? We have residents uh, who are part of our general surgery, East Bay, UCSF general surgery, who rotate. In, uh, in neurosurgery, uh, we, we don't uh, have uh, neurosurgery resident yet here, but this is something that we have talked about, and we have talked about also uh, fellowship in uh, neurotrauma, uh, but uh, currently it's a general surgery uh, resident who rotate with our neurosurgeons. Are there any other questions? I'm happy to entertain a motion from the trustees. So move. I'll second. All right, just to clarify, this is a motion to move to the full board, correct? Move this contract approval? Correct. Perfect, let's take a vote. Um, Trustee Blue. Aye. 
Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. All right, motion passes. Excellent. The final part of our agenda is to review tracking items and committee planning. Um, there was an item that came to my attention tonight um, that I want to make sure we pay attention to, which was the 30-day readmit uh, and the factors therein. Uh, I do want to make sure that we hold on to that as something for further education and discussion at a later date. Um, we can go through our entire list, but I don't know that we need to. We will be having our full board retreat at the end of this month on the 30th, uh, during which time we'll have a day long, uh, including training and presentations from our finance committee, our finance chair, or CFO rather. I have a question on, on one item. Yes. On the Whipfly uh, in consulting arrangement, I, I mean, a long, several weeks ago, I participated in a couple Wednesday morning, but I haven't seen anything since then. Uh, what is the status of, of the, 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 that process? Kim, do you mind giving an answer to that? I'm pretty sure it's going to come up in our uh, retreat. Uh, sure. So um, Whipley was engaged uh, for the phase two to help us develop facility-based financial statements. That was the, the, the majority or the biggest part of the assignment. So um, we have, they have actually developed methodologies for allocation. Uh, we have started the work on trying to divide out our costs into back into entities because they had been all merged together so that we can get a true idea of what our costs are at the entity and then eventually at the program level. So we've made a lot of work on that. We've, we've uh, restated last year's budget by entity and now we are building out the financial statements. In fact, my first set of financial statements out of Lawson uh, was planned for April 1st. So it's April 7th, so I know we're maybe running about a week behind, but my the, our last meet, meeting, they said things were going well and I'm gonna have financial statements out of our Lawson software. So thrilled with that. Next step is then to build it out uh, at the entity level. Our feeling now is that we will not be able to um, to do that until the next fiscal year for all of you. However, Whipley is more than happy and, and planning to uh, go to ELT first uh, to present the, their work. They'll do it using this current year's budget because we'll have to flip it to actual. Um, and then from there, it can go to uh, the finance committee and, and board. So it's really just a matter of timing on the calendar to go through the internal group first and then to finance committee. Does that answer your question? Are there any other questions? All right. That 
is the end of our agenda. And unless we all want to just hang out and look at each other, we can entertain a motion to adjourn. Though I don't mind looking at all of your faces. We can all come off on camera now. We can sing a song. We can good <laughs> go night. <laughs> we can say good night. Does that mean you move to adjourn? Yes. I'll second that. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Thank good you. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank good you. Meeting.